Good morning. morning. Let's go ahead and begin with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your love and for Jesus. We ask that your spirit will join us, uh, enlighten our minds, transform our hearts, and enable us to fulfill the purpose you've called us to take the final message of mercy to the world, to enlighten the world for your return. We pray in your holy name. Amen. I want to share with you a vision for the future. Our board met a couple of months back, and we prayerfully considered and decided that it's time for us to, to look for some type of a permanent facility for our ministry. And we've begun the process of looking at properties, uh, consider building. We haven't made any decision on a property at this point, but we've made the decision to pursue a property at this point where we can have a recording studio that is an auditorium-style studio where we have permanently set and we can uh, then have events and hopefully the vision will allow us to start maybe maybe i don't want to commit and say it's going to happen but the lord blesses uh, a daily live show from our studio would be nice and then we'll still have our class meet once a week but we'll see we don't do fundraisers as you know and so you're not going to get a thing in the mail asking for money or hitting you up for money but we've had several people come to us and ask what are your needs and they encouraged us to let people know because we don't want to get our ministry in a big debt. So we really don't want to really pursue this without the resources to be successful in doing it. So we're letting people know we're doing it. If people want to support us, uh, support us with your prayers, that the Lord will open up opportunities and bring to us the resources to pursue this uh, at this time. We're doing Lesson 5 in the quarterly, The Promise God's Everlasting Covenant, and the title is Children of the Promise. And there's a story uh, that we're going to read. It's in, the, uh, it's in the Sabbath lesson, and it says, A father and his 10-year-old daughter were spending their holiday at the seashore. One day they went out to enjoy a swim in the ocean, and although they were both good swimmers, some distance out from the shore they became separated. The father, realizing that they were being carried out to sea by the tide, called to his child, Mary, I'm going to shore for help. If you get tired, just turn on your back. You can float all day that way. I'll come back for you. Before long, many searchers and boats were scurrying over the face of the water, hunting for one small girl. Hundreds of people on the shore had heard the news and were waiting anxiously. It was four hours before they found her, far from land, but she was calmly floating on her back and not at all frightened. Cheers and tears of joy and relief greeted the rescuers when they came back to land with their precious burden but the child took it all calmly she seemed to think it was strange the way they acted she said father said i could float all day on my back and that he would come for me so i just swam and floated because i knew he would come do we know jesus is coming back do we have the same confidence as this little girl Why wasn't the little girl afraid? Trusted her dad. Okay, but she was floating in an ocean full of sharks. So she she wasn't afraid of abandonment. She didn't doubt her father would return. But why wasn't she afraid the sharks would get her while she waited for him to return? She didn't realize there were sharks. She didn't realize there were sharks, perhaps. Or perhaps she knew there were sharks in the ocean, but that's not where she focused. She focused on her father's promise. Where does the Bible tell us to put our focus? Fix your eyes on 
on Christ, the author and perfecter or finisher of your faith. What would happen to the little girl's attitude if she remembered dad was coming to get her, so she had every confidence, but she began worrying about the possibility of sharks getting her while she knew her dad was coming to get her? Would she have had as much peace? He know, I know he's coming. He's not going to abandon me, but there's sharks out here. Or if she focused on her own bodily limitations, I, I'm going to fatigue, I'm going to get... Di- I know he's coming, but I'm going to get tired. If she focused on that, would she have had the same peace, even though she, she trusted her dad to come get her? Are we vulnerable today to take the focus off of Jesus and allow the dangers circling in the world, the sharks around us, to overwhelm us? What happens if we focus upon COVID? global warming, overpopulation, social injustice, governmental abuse, gun violence, or any other danger in this world. Nobody's doing that, right? Who is the prince of this world? Satan. What's his goal? And it's critical at this time in history that we keep our eyes fixed on Christ. Fix your eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter or finisher of our faith. And that as we fix our eyes on Christ, we fulfill the purpose that he's called us. We follow where he's leading. Practice his methods and trust the Lord with the outcome. Sunday's lesson asks us to read Genesis 15.1. It says, After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. What does it mean that God is Abram's shield? Shield from what? Is this primarily a temporal shield from physical disease, starvation, attack from marauders? Or is something more going on? Is this a spiritual shield, a shield against fear, selfishness, and eternal death? What kind of shield is is this to be? Is it a shield from Satan's attack that would seek to destroy his faith, to destroy his usefulness for God's plan? And what is God's plan for Abram? To be a source of the remedy. Yes, to be the father of the people who become the avenue for the Messiah, to bring the Messiah. That's the plan, to bring the Messiah to heal Abram for eternal life and to heal the rest who respond for eternal life. So God isn't shielding merely from temporal problems. I think he is. And we see those activities in Old Testament where God is doing that. But the ultimate shield is from sin destroying, isn't it? In fact, if we looked at God's shielding, not just of Abraham, but us, it's not primarily about shielding from temporal problems. The primary shielding is to shield our hearts from the destructiveness of fear and selfishness from doubt, from lies. Does God sometimes not shield a person or people from temporal trials and even death because they are already spiritually healed or sealed and have eternal life and their temporal trials or death while not brought by God? God chooses not to intervene to stop them because through their witness, more will come to eternal life. Think of the martyrs that died in Rome and the people who came to Christ through their witness. The lesson asks, why would the first thing the Lord says to Abram be, fear not? 
What would Abram have to fear? That's what the lesson asks. Why would it be? From where does fear originate? Where does it come? As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. Did they need to be afraid of God? So they had fear. Where does it come? Sin condition incites it. The condition of sin itself incites fear, guilt, shame, a sense of inadequacy, fear of rejection, of not being good enough, insecurity, fear of punishment. This comes from the condition and is magnified whenever we're exposed to truth and love, infinite health, infinite rightness or righteousness. Whenever The closer we get to seeing the ideal, it magnifies the inadequacy in us and we fear. When a sin, sinner comes close to godly truth and love, their sense of personal shortcomings, sinfulness, defectiveness becomes more intense, and this causes a greater sense of fear. I'm no good, I'm bad. And the individual does one of two things at that point. They either surrender because they've been convinced that God is good and they realize that they're sick and there's something wrong, but they trust God and they surrender and ask him to search me and see the wicked way, create me a clean heart, O God, fix the brokenness. I know I'm no good, but you're good. And they trust God with their sickness and their sick state and he heals them. That's one response to the conviction of the inadequacy and the fear that it's overcome with trust and ultimately love as he pours love into the heart. Or they run away from God. They run. And, And they can run physically. They can run by begging the mountains to fall on them. They can run into all types of self-soothing activities to make them feel less fearful. They can run into false legal theologies where they claim legal payments to the punishing God and he has no right now to hurt them. But they're not trusting. They're hiding. So every time an angel appears to one of God's spokespersons, his prophets, the first thing they say every time, even to Mary, when, when the angel came to Mary, Fear not, because the condition causes that gut reaction. And just think about it. You're at home this evening in prayer, having a great communion with the Lord, and an angel, boom, pops into the room with you. Brilliant angel. You think you might have a little bit of a fear reaction? Fear not. Don't be afraid. We just had a squirrel run in front of our car. I was like, ah! <laughs> you ever had that startle you? Okay. We have nothing to fear from God. We have something to fear from sin, from the condition, from refusing to allow God to heal us. It's like cancer. We don't need to fear the cancer doctor. We need to feel the un- fear the unhealed cancer. It's like going to the dentist. We don't need to fear the dentist. He or she is there to help us identify any cavities, fix them, yet many people are afraid of going to the dentist. Why? Because the healing process is painful. Even when the dentist is gentle. Yes or no? Likewise, so this is the truism. Once there is brokenness, there are no pain-free options. 
Once there is brokenness, there's no pain. There's only healing, going through the process of healing, but that process is painful. Getting the cavity drilled, getting it filled, uh, having a bone set, going to the various therapy, get a pin put in it. That process is painful once there's brokenness. But that process leads to healing, recovery, and eventually the pain goes away as wellness is restored. Or there's avoiding of the healing. Let's just give me some, some pain meds to, so I don't feel my cavity. And many people, when it comes to the brokenness in the soul, what they do is they pursue anesthesia rather than healing. And anesthesia is through most of the destructive behaviors that the Bible calls sins, sensual sins, relationship sins, uh, substance sins, gambling sins, shopping, greed sins. All these things are designed to make the person feel better, feel better. Power over others. Criticism of others' sins. Uh, uh, at least I'm not as bad as them. It's all designed to anesthetize the person. And then Eastern meditation. Hopefully you've read our, our meditation guide. Eastern meditation is self-anesthesia. It's designed to uh, take away that feeling of fear that sin brings that should lead you to the Savior that will then lead you through the valley of the shadow of death. Not the valley of death. It's the valley where you die to self, where self is crucified. It feels like you're dying on the inside, but your shepherd is leading you in that valley, which is the path of righteousness for the restoration of your soul. Jacob's night of struggle. David, after Nathaniel or Nathan uh, confronted him, you, you see this this process, and people instead it feels bad. They get to that point, you know. The Lord always starts gently. He starts with the you know, the, the green pastures and the still waters, but eventually He leads you in the path of righteousness to restore your soul, and that takes you into the valley of the shadow of death, where you must die to self. And if you, and what happens is, so many people. They're in trouble, they're in crisis, they go to the Lord, they feel His presence, His peace. Thank you for giving me, you've, you've, you've given me your grace. Oh, you've taken away the guilt. Oh, thank you, Lord. Yes, but now we need to. And they get to the point, they start feeling that terrible pain again that they need to address, resolve, and deal with. And that's when they go back to their addiction or whatever their dysfunction is to anesthetize us or to Eastern meditation. And Eastern meditation is designed to take away the feeling without actually taking away the problem. So Eastern meditation treats a symptom, whereas biblical meditation will cure the problem by changing the heart. Monday's lesson focuses our attention on the promise to Abraham and his seed and how all the nations there will be blessed. Are the promises to Abraham just to the genetic descendants of Abraham or to all humanity? And you know that's a rhetorical question. To all humanity. God covenanted in Genesis chapter 3 to save the species human. He chose Abraham to be the progenitor of the family through which Jesus would be born, but the covenant was not restricted to the biological descendants. It was given to all those who are like Abraham in character. Understand, this is still a point of huge confusion in the world in the Christian church today. The Jews in Christ's day believed the promise to Abraham were based on biology, on genetics, and Jesus himself let them know their understanding was wrong. And so we read in uh, John chapter 8, starting in verse 37. This is Jesus speaking to the, the people to say, I know you're Abraham's descendants. So Jesus acknowledges their genetics, their biology. But he goes on to say, Yet you are ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. 
pause. They are not lovers of the truth. His words are the words of truth. They have no room for truth in their heart. They have their theology. They have their belief system. They have their law. They have their rules. Truth should not try to invade here. They have no room for his word. They're not lovers of truth. They're not open to be led by light to discard faulty understandings and move forward in the light that God would give us. And understand those who are lost according to uh, the New Testament are, are those who do not love the truth and must be saved. The Bible does not say we have to know all truth. Only God is infinite, omniscient, and knows all truth. We will never know all truth. What we have to have, though, are hearts that love truth. There's a difference between knowing it all and loving the truth. We should have hearts that love truth, that will follow the truth, that will move forward in the truth, that are willing to be corrected, that are willing to discard faulty ideas when we're persuaded by the weight of evidence and truth, that there's a better understanding. We can be led and we, can, we will follow the shepherd. But when we have hearts that don't love truth, we have our theology, we've got our 28 fundamentals, we've got our system, we've got our, our structure, and we're not willing to be correct, then the door is closed for the spirit of truth to work. This is the problem. They didn't, they didn't have no room for his word. Christ continues, I am telling you that I have seen what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you do what you have heard from your Father. Here Jesus tells them that their genetics doesn't determine whose children they are. He tells them that they have a different father than Abraham had, even though they are genetically descended from Abraham. They protest. Oh, no, no, no. This is them now, Scripture. Abraham is, is our father, they answered. Jesus continues. If Abraham, if you were Abraham's children, he says, if you were Abraham's children, Jesus said, then you would do the things Abraham did. Jesus makes it clear who is a child of Abraham and who, and who is not. It is not about genetics and biology. It is about being like Abraham in character and trusting God and having faith to follow where God leads, living God's methods. In fact, Scripture frequently describes the faithful as the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Frequently, over and over again, New Testament, Jesus does this. We come to a feast of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's because they represent the entire healing plan of salvation. It starts with Abraham. And what's Abraham known for? It starts with faith. We have to have our heart converted from enmity or distrust to have a new heart that trusts. And once we have a heart that trusts, okay, we, our heart has been set right. We have been justified. We've been put right with the Lord. Our heart now trusts the Lord. We are now a child of Abraham. But that isn't enough. We go from trust, I trust you, Lord, immediately in the trust, the next one happens. We become a child of Isaac if we really trust. And what's the child of Isaac? Well, what is Isaac known for? Obedience. Obedience is suggested. Isaac stands out in history. Most significant thing about Isaac is his birth. It's his birth. He was a promised child. 
born to a woman with a dead womb. This represents after we trust God, we who are dead in trespass and sin, from that position of death, basically, we have life. We're reborn again. We're born again. It's the promised birth that we receive. Okay? And then we are children of, once we have come to trust and been reborn, the promised child, the born from death to life, we're children of Abraham and Isaac. How do we become children of Jacob? What's Jacob primarily known for? Overcomer. He wrestled with God, in union with God. See, many people think he was fighting against God. This is actually not true. If you actually see what was happening in Jacob's life, Jacob struggled with fear and selfishness. This is why he acted to deceive on multiple occasions. This is why he ran away because he wanted to protect self. This is why he did all the deals all the time. And then when he comes back to meet his brother, he sends everyone before and leaves himself behind because he's still afraid and he's praying, is my brother going to kill me? Is my brother going to kill me? Is my brother going to kill me? He's still fighting to protect self. This is what's happening. And the night he wrestles with the angel, not against the angel, with the angel, the angel comes and helps him wrestle against his own fear and selfishness until the point he finally surrenders. He surrenders. And then his name was changed from Jacob, the deceiver, to Israel, one who with God overcomes. Not who one, one who overcomes God. One who in union, joined with God, overcomes fear and selfishness. And so we become children of Abraham by faith. We become children of Isaac by being reborn. We become children of Jacob by with yoking up with Christ to overcome fear and selfishness in our life. These are the people who go into heaven. And that's, that's how you're a child of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The, they, but the, uh, they protest Jesus when he says, uh, if, if you were, you would do the things, uh, you're doing the things your own father does. And they go, Again, they're protesting now. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. So again, they're protesting Jesus, claiming God is the father. So Jesus responds. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, if he were, you would love me for I came from God and now I'm here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you're unable to hear what I say. Unable to hear why? Why are they unable to hear? Because they're, they're deaf? No, this isn't about acoustics. It's about comprehension, accepting, discerning. Why don't they do it? Because they've already rejected his word. Because they don't love truth. They don't want to hear. They don't want to understand. They purposely take what he says and distort it. You belong, then he goes on to say, you belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. For there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. He is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus makes it unmistakable here. Genetics are irrelevant. What matters is character. Those who have faith like Abraham are children of Abraham. Those who are reborn with that through that faith are children of Isaac. And those who... Fight the fight in conjunction with Christ to overcome our children of Jacob. And Paul wrote the same thing in Galatians 3.29. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. 
Who, who is an heir according to the promise? Those who belong to Christ. So the genetics don't actually make a difference. And then, and in the Bible, the Bible teaches repeated. There's no, there's no Jew or Greek in Christ. There's no male and female. We're all one. We're united if we have Christ in the heart. Thus, the Bible divides humanity into only two groups. Two groups the Bible divides in. The saved and the lost. The wheat and the tares. The fruitful vine and the withered vine. The faithful woman and the harlot. The righteous and the wicked. The sheep and the goats. It's only two. Two, two, two. But humanity divides itself into many groups. And fight, and then fights against each other. Tribes, races, ethnicities, nations, political parties, religions, denominations, sport fans, climate change believers, climate change deniers, mask wearers, non-wearers. We're constantly dividing ourselves and fighting, and then fighting. Not leaving free. It's okay. You're free to see it differently. I'm, I'm going to love you anyway. No, you don't. No, you, you need to be punished. We need to fine you, take your liberties from you, maybe kill you. In America, the greatest divisions seem to be along race and politics. Yet the racial divisions of the 21st century is a manipulation and diversion to prevent the people from having the unity of the people. The real cause of the majority of the conflict, the majority, of course there are individual races out there, of course. The majority, the majority of people, though, are not. The real cause of the, of, of the majority of conflict, though, and hostility in our society is not caused by racism in the hearts of the vast majority of people, but caused by classism. Powerful, wealthy elites who control various media outlets are constantly inflaming racial tensions to prevent the financial middle and lower classes from uniting and electing leaders that represent their concerns and breaking up these mega corporations that are now directing the policies of this nation. That's what's happening. We, we, won't, we'll not, we will not break up AT&T like we did back in the 80s. These mega corporations, these corporations are way bigger than AT&T ever was. These mega corporations do not want national boundaries. Understand, this is a move towards globalism. They don't want national boundaries because they're not interested in people. Corporations are interested in profit and power. And they cannot make as much money in one country as they can around the world. And they don't want boundaries because they want to be able to have the cheapest labor in the in the countries with the mo- with the lowest standard of living that they can exploit for their for their cheap pr- uh, labor productions and then take and sell those products in the countries that will pay the most for them without any tariffs and without any taxes and without any trade barriers. That's what they want. You should see it for what it is. And the Bible gives insight if you're reading the beastly power rises on economic power no one can buy or sell that's economics except him who has the mark so they incite constantly racial racial divisions to prevent the majority of the people from uniting and acting to break up their power exactly as revelation predicted in the end there'll be only two groups the righteous and the wicked and they will not be separated by denomination or political party or race or nation, what separates the two groups is character. They will either be like Christ, 
or like the, like the evil one. And the lesson in the first paragraph states the following, quote, Jesus, Jesus, quote, would at the cross pay for the sins of all the families of the earth, unquote. When you hear language like that, what does it mean? Pay for the sins. What law lens are you, are you reading through? To whom? When you hear pay, Jesus at the cross paid for all the sins. To whom did he make the payment? What was the payment? What is the payment? Is it blood? Human blood. You had to have human, animal blood wouldn't work. You had to have human blood. Red corporal. How about it just to donate? Go to blood assurance and make a donation. that work? Is it death? Is it a human sacrifice? We must have the sacrifice of a human. We worship a God who requires the payment of a human sacrifice. Not just any human. His own. His own son, yeah. Is it paid to God? Is the, is the blood payment made to God? Is it paid to Satan? What kind of a God would require a human sacrifice? Why would God need a payment? What would he need it for? What is the purpose of a blood payment? What does it achieve? What does it fix? How does it change things? Do we need to understand the, the purpose of why Christ had died? What, what, what his death was to achieve in order to understand why, why he did it? Does the law lens we look through have any impact on our understanding of these questions? Do you have any questions about that? Before I share some of my thoughts. Any, any questions? This is central. It's a central thing to the whole great controversy, why Christ had to die. Well, it goes first, though, before you can answer the question, you have to understand the problem. If your diagnosis is wrong, then your treatment is usually wrong. You're treating the wrong thing. And if you have the wrong law lens, well, God's law is no different than ours. Just It's a made-up system of rules that requires judicial oversight, police action, enforcement, uh, judgment, and then infliction of punishment. That's how God runs his universe. That's your view. Then the problem of sin is law-breaking as legal problem. Broke the law, you're in legal trouble. The magistrate must hold you accountable, and then justice requires infliction of punishment. Somebody has to be punished. If you don't punish, the law is meaningless. There's no law. We have chaos. We have to punish. If that's how God law, law works, and therefore somebody had to be punished. If we're going to be saved, then the minimum punishment, of course, is eternal death. And, it, and so, so he either kills all of us, or he sends somebody who doesn't deserve it, kills that person, and then allows that, that, that death penalty, that, 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 that death on the cross to be applied in some legal way to an account of everybody who claims it, and then he doesn't have to kill you. Just think it through for a minute. Try that in any society. We have a serial killer. Convicted, confessed. But his mother loves him so much that she comes and offers to give her life and the judge says, okay, um, we'll kill you and your son can go out back in the community. How many would appreciate that? How many would feel safe with that serial killer as your neighbor? Do you understand killing an innocent in no way, in this penal legal way, has any impact on resolving the sin problem? None. So you have to come back to God as creator. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea. Understand his laws are the laws upon which reality work. That life only exists in harmony with his design, his protocols, his principles, the principles of love, truth, liberty, and so forth. So many. And then what did Christ do? He came 
The Lamb of God that takes the punishment of the world? Is that what John the Baptist said? Or the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world? Something he's going to do is going to remove sin from the world, not take punishment from his Father. How does he do it? He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Notice, we become righteous through his achievement. We believe in substitutionary atonement here, but it's healing substitution, not penal. It was to achieve an outcome. So think through just simple questions. When Adam sinned in Eden, did God get changed? Did God's law get changed? No. Did the condition of humankind get changed? Yes, humankind was not the same. So there's a breach now. There's a fracture. Something is not as God created it anymore. God hasn't changed. His law hasn't changed. Humankind has changed. So however you describe the plan of salvation, if we're to have reconciliation, at one minute, restoration, removal of the problem, healing, whatever you want to call it, does God need to be worked on? Does God's law need to be worked on? Paid, adjusted, whatever? Does the condition of humankind need to be worked on or changed? And thus, the, the action of Christ, whatever he's doing, it has to be effectual in human beings. That's where the action is. And so this whole penal legal thing tricks human beings into claiming a legal um, application of something going on in the courtroom in heaven, so they take their eyes off the real problem, which is their own character and heart. But if you actually read Scripture and actually think about what it means... The whole plan of salvation is described as, I will remove your heart of stone and put in a tender heart. I will write my law on your heart and mind. I will circumcise your heart by the Spirit. And on and on and on, all the metaphors tell the same thing. It's, it's action is here. And so then when you understand that, you think, okay, was there a price paid though? Well, if you have a child dying of renal failure and you donate your kidney to save your child... Can we say, man, you paid a price to save your child? Can we say that and, and understand what it means? Yes, that language is not wrong. But think through the things it doesn't mean. Does it mean you paid a legal price? Did you pay a price of your kidney? Did you give the kidney the price you paid to the hospital administration? To the doctor? Who got the kidney? The one dying. Well, why? Why would you have to pay that price? Well, it was written down in a book somewhere. No. Because it was the only thing that would save somebody in renal failure. They, need, they didn't have a kidney. They couldn't produce one of their own. You gave one. This is much more accurate to the process of the price that was paid. So, the, the ransom price, what holds us in bondage? Two things hold us in bondage. The lies we believe about God... So Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And he is the word made flesh, so he is the living revelation of the truth about God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so we need the truth to dispel lies to win us to trust. That's great. We need that. But is that all? Let me, let me, let me bring this home. We need something else. We also need a new nature. We need new hearts and right spirits. Can we develop a, a perfect, sinless human nature Can we and character? Can we do that? No. And it says in Hebrews 5, 9, that once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation. He developed as a human being, using human abilities, a perfect, sinless human character. And he offers these to us as a free gift through faith. And thus, who is the payment made to? Exactly like the kidney. He 
reveals truth to us. The Father did not need truth revealed to him. He wasn't confused. We were. And once we're one to trust, we receive through the Spirit the life of Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We get new hearts and right spirits. The victory he won becomes, we get new desires, new motives that we didn't make and we didn't produce as human beings. Christ did. And then we align with them and we choose them. This is the reality. So there's a price. It costs an infinite price. We can't appreciate fully the infinite price he paid, but it wasn't legal. It was the price that condition itself required in order to provide us what we needed to be set back into harmony with God. It was healing price. Okay, question. Can you explain to me that the, the, when he said that he took our sin on him, the sin of every human being? So where does it say he took the sin of every human being? Where does it say that? Well, that's just me, I guess. Yeah, no, so you won't, you really, he, he who knew no sin became sin for us. That's right. And he... he Literally, I mean, abusers, murderers. Uh, so those are just symptoms of sin. Those are the symptoms. The acts or sins that we describe are the symptoms of the condition. You say if you commit adultery, you commit sin. I say if you lust in your heart. You say if you commit murder, you commit sin. I say if you hate in your heart. So all the things we call sins, the deeds, the behaviors that the world and imperial law focuses on, the the, the acts, that is symptomology that only comes from hearts that are no longer operating as God designed them, hearts that are infected with fear and selfishness. And so when you heal the heart, then the behaviors are also being transformed and changed. The behaviors are not really the problem anymore. The fever and cough is the problem with pneumonia. The problem is the infection. You, fix, you heal the infection, the symptoms resolve. So he took the condition. The condition. He became sin. Sinfulness was taken. And that he was tempted in every way, just like we are yet without sin. And we're tempted primarily by fear and selfishness. And in Gethsemane, you see his agony as he's being tempted. And he tells you what he's being tempted to do. Father, if it possible, let me go through the cross. No, I don't want to go through. I'm feeling in terrible anguish so bad I'm breaking out in a sweat of blood. It's horrible emotional pain that I'm suffering here. That's the taking on the sin condition right there. And then on the cross, he is attacked externally to inflame those feelings. Hey, you saved others, save yourself. Act in self-interest, survival drives, act on them, choose them, and we'll believe. We'll worship you if you become like us and become survival-driven. But every time the, the temptation, whether it's internal, because he took the condition that could tempt him like us, or external, being tempted from the devil or the people, every time, no one can take my life. I give it freely. He overcame with love as a human, using human, human ability, human brain, something we could never do. And he developed a perfect, sinless human character. And at the cross, that infection, that, that, that aspect that tempts us with fear and selfishness was, was crucified, was gone. He rose in, on the third day in a, in a humanity perfected and purged from the infection. And thus he becomes, Hebrews 5, 9, perfected. Once he became once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation. And we become branches connected to him, and the Spirit takes his victory. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives. And we get new motives. And we, don't, we don't develop them. We receive them and act on them, but don't develop them. Yes? It's, I think it's important to realize that, no, we cannot, without God's help, become like Christ, but Christ has given that to us. So we can become overcomers. Yes, yes, yes. That's how we become child of Jacob. Yeah. Yep. We 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 don't we will not be free of temptation 
until the second coming. But we can be free of being controlled by fear and selfishness. We can become like Job, who was perfect and righteous in all his ways, and he suffered and he agonized and he was tempted, but he never distrusted God. He was not shaken out of it. The sealed are not those who are free from temptation. The sealed are those who trust God so much that they would rather die than betray him. These are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death, Revelation 12. Their hearts are sealed to loyalty, love, and trust in God. Not that they're free from agony, pain, or temptation. They just don't give in to it. They don't buy the lies anymore. They know God is good. Beyond doubt. The penal lie, though, is based on the human imposed law and makes God out to be the source of pain, the source of suffering, the source of death that he inflicts upon people to punish for sin, and thus they also teach that God killed Jesus at the cross to satisfy his justice. It's a gross distortion. Now, I have some good news and sad news. I'm going to go over with you guys. Good news and sad news. The good news is our message is penetrating around the world. People are being, uh, are being freed from this penal legal stuff. And the sad news is that because of it, some um, church leaders are threatened as we're overthrowing the penal legal view and have started doing programs around the circle against us. In fact, I became recently became aware that a, another pastor is going around with a PowerPoint program, and the title slide of his PowerPoint program is Tim Jennings. Yep, the title slide, my name. Dude, you're famous. <laughs> his presentation his presentation is not merely a discussion of different theological views. Do we believe the law functions this way or this way? Do we believe that Jesus had to die to appease an angry God? Or do we believe it was this? It wasn't simply a discussion of theological views. No, it was purposely constructed to attack me. And you understand, when they, when they can't defeat the truthful ideas, then they want to attack the messenger and make people think the messenger is somehow corrupt. And, and so he attacked me in a, in a couple of interesting ways. Uh, and, and these were given uh, some public lectures to other pastors, as I understand. I don't know who did it. I don't know the pastor's name. I don't really care to know the pastor's name. I just know this is going on. Uh, uh, and I'm not going to tell you where it's going on. But, he, but what he did is he made multiple false characterizations of what I teach and wove those in with a couple of quotations uh, used by me of other people to represent me as teaching what other people teach. Uh, first, I want to comment on his method. He doesn't ever actually attack what I teach directly or my position. He never quotes me, never uses my materials. Uh, instead, he assigns beliefs to me. That, that, that is what I teach from other sources that I've quoted. Uh, I quoted uh, Irenaeus, uh, which is one of the early church fathers, and Robert Franks to demonstrate that neither of those teach penal substitution, making the historic point that penal substitution has not always been taught in the Christian church. Uh, but then he, because I quoted them to show that, takes their positions on the atonement and attacks them, uh, suggesting that I teach what they teach. So that so he shoots those down, but assigns them to me. Then there was an email that came in where somebody uh, told him how much our ministry had helped them and shared this person's understanding of what I teach, which, which you can tell there's a growth going on there, but it's not really the most accurate way that I would represent things. And he shoots down that email's perspective of what I teach as if that's what I teach. This was the method he used. But my, my materials, my books, my, my lectures, uh, my view of the atonement is in the, um, 
uh, all seven seven different um, moral developmental models and all the different atonement models are in the uh, near the last chapter of the God shaped heart uh, in our um, program of um, the Power of Love Training and Equipping course. I have a whole thing on the atonement there and the church uh, God in your church uh, lecture. I have it there. I have my material widely everywhere. It wasn't like he he. Well, I'm not sure what he's teaching, but I'm. No, he purposely chose not to actually inform himself. So the three big lies are, one, I don't believe Scripture and think I'm superior to the Scripture and I am capable of correcting Scripture because of the paraphrase remedy. That was one. Two, I don't believe in substitutionary nature of Jesus' sacrifice for our salvation. And three, I teach moral influence theory. These are the three big ones. The assertions are false. I absolutely believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, but I do not believe in the inerrancy of translators. And it's very interesting that his critique of my remedy, he used English translations, and he never referenced the Hebrew or the Greek. So he's relying on translations that say it, particularly the big thing for him was translations that use words like appeasement for the sacrifice. And because I don't teach appeasement, that God doesn't need to be appeased by the blood of his son, then, I'm, then I am not supporting the Bible, I'm changing it. Well, you know, the, the, the appeasement is actually not taught in Scripture. It, it, it comes through in the translations by people who read the Bible with an imperial law model before they actually start translating. He uses Ellen White and some Ellen White quotes where she talks about certain men who believe that they're above the Bible and set themselves above it and therefore seek to correct the errors of the Scripture. And then he compares me to Joseph Smith, who was the founder of the Mormon Church. But... Uh, example of, tr- of of translation errors, just simple ones that need to be corrected, and he would do this himself. The comma placed where Jesus tells the thief that he'll be with him in paradise. That's an error that translators put in. Or, just another simple one, uh, when Jesus said, I, if I be lifted up, will draw all unto me. The translators insert the word men. No, Jesus, according to Colossians and other places, is drawing the whole universe. All things in heaven and earth are reconciled to Christ the cross. He's drawing the intelligences in the universe as well, not just men, but the translators insert men and reduce the significance of Christ's death there. And, and so we're moving. There are corrections that need to be made in translation. Then I teach that salvation is only possible because of the substitutionary nature of Christ's death and resurrection, but teach this is at one meant or healing restoration, not penal legal, as we just went through in here. We uh, believe what I just said, that we need two things, and they're represented by the blood and the wine or the flesh and the blood. The word made flesh. We need the words of truth. We need the truth of Christ's life to dispel the lies, to win us to trust. And then we need the new life, that the life is in the blood. We need, we need the new life in our hearts. And Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. Metaphorically, he's talking about we must have the words of truth to dispel the lies. We must have a new heart and raised spirit, his life in us. This is what we teach. He, he achieved what we couldn't. If we stop, though, with just half, the bread, the, uh, the bread, the flesh, or the words of truth, just the words of truth to dispel lies and win us to trust, and that's all that's needed, if we stop there we would be teaching moral influence theory. That's what moral influence theory is. God loved us so much, he revealed truth to win us to trust, and that's all that was necessary. But we never stop there, ever stop there. We always teach that trust in a doctor that has no remedy for you will still leave you terminal. Trust was absolutely necessary 
to be restored, but we also needed a real remedy, which I described how Christ achieved for us just a moment ago. It's interesting he doesn't include that part. And then finally, his his public uh, accusation uh, was against me personally, um, and he never came to me, never contacted me, never tried to clarify anything with me, uh, didn't take my writings directly, misrepresented uh, by setting up these false ideas that he believes I teach and then shoots down the false ideas that I don't even teach so he can feel good about his false position. So he liked to quote Ellen White repeatedly in his program. So I've got one that if anybody knows who this is, and I don't even know who it is. It wasn't on the slide. It didn't put his name on the, on the title slide. But, but if anybody knows who it is, share with him First Selected Messages, page 411, since he likes the, the, to quote this author. Those who cannot impartially examine the evidence of a position that differs from theirs are not fit to teach in any department of God's cause. And why did the pastor and other church leaders do this? Because they know their view is false. On some level, it doesn't hold water. And they fear what I teach, because what I teach causes their house of cards to collapse, because I'm teaching the truth. And the gates of hell cannot stand up against it. And I've invited, and if you know who this pastor is, you can let him know. I invite him to a public discussion before a live audience that we stream live where we will have equal time to present our views and then answer questions from each other and from the audience. I fear none of it. The truth can afford to be fair. It loses nothing by investigation. I've done this before, repeatedly with these theologians and pastors to do this. They never take me up on it. Why? I don't claim to know all truth. If I'm holding some view that, that it is not the most accurate view, I want it corrected. I want to grow in the truth. I want to love truth and advance in truth. So why would they not want to do this? For the same reason the Pharisees weren't hearing the words of Christ. Because they have their system. They have their box. They have their doctrine. They have their fundamental creed. And anything that challenges that threatens authority of the system. They're afraid. They're terrified. Well, if we're wrong about this, we might be wrong about that, and this is what our church stands for, and we have to protect the institution. It's better for one man to die than the nation. Got to protect the institution. Classic argument. So if you have friends around the circle who hear some of these presentations, prepare them. Inform them of this. And then... Ask the friend, or if they have a chance to talk to the speaker, if the speaker ever called and talked to me to clarify and make sure that they're presenting me accurately, because they certainly wouldn't want to be dishonest, would they? They wouldn't want to misrepresent me and present falsehoods about me. They'd only want to critique the truth, wouldn't they? So ask them if they've talked to me. And if not, if your friend's listening, why would you listen to somebody who who used these methods? And then... Suggest that I'm willing to come. I can travel anywhere that the, that I, I, that the planes will carry me. These days, it might not be far. <laughs> but I'm willing to come and have a public discussion. I'm open for that. All righty. Tuesday's lesson. First paragraph uh, in the lesson quotes Augustine commenting on the human condition. It says, This life of ours is a life so full of such great ills uh, in fact, I'm going to not do this part of it because I want to jump to something else uh, that I really want to spend some time on. 
Uh, boy, I wish we could have got into Wednesday's lesson because I was going to show uh, through uh, Abraham's children how the devil was trying to, to crush out the, the seed of Abraham and how God was constantly intervening to overrule and keep open the avenue. Uh, it's in the notes. But I got an email that uh, triggered some things that I wanted to talk about from Thursday's lesson. Um, it's about salvation. And can we be saved without Jesus? And, of course, we cannot. But does it require the sinner's cooperation to be saved? Well, this question came in because somebody had been doing some studies with a Calvinist, and the Calvinist walked them through their acronym for Calvinism, which is an acronym that spells TULIP. And I don't know if you know, we are not from the Calvinist tradition. We are from the Armenian, Armenianism, Armenian tradition. And that comes from a person named Jacobus Arminius uh, versus John Calvin. And Arminius opposed Calvin's view of unconditional election. And so historic Calvinism has five main points, acronym TULIP. The first is T, total depravity of humankind. We are born corrupted, enmity with God, with a carnal nature that naturally wars and rebels against God, and we can do nothing to change the situation. And in this view of total depravity, it includes our inability to choose to respond to God and accept him. We can't make the choice. We're so depraved, we can't even choose God. What this fails to realize is that right in Genesis 3, God began interceding in the hearts, and he said to the serpent, I'll put enmity between you and the woman. And so God limited the corrupting influence in the hearts of human beings to give us the freedom to choose salvation and not be totally powerless and uh, and just simply controlled by the, the carnal forces at that point. So total depravity in the way they teach it denies Genesis 3 and God's intercession in our hearts. On two is unconditional election, the U, T-U, unconditional election. This means that God cho- God chooses to give some people eternal life because God wills it regardless of what that person wants, chooses, or does. God's election is sovereign and overrules any choice on the part of the sinner and is an evidence of God's love. He loves so much, he will overrule you and make sure you're saved because that's how much he loves you. This is gross perversity. It's a violation of the law of love and the law of liberty and teaches that love is authoritarian, domineering, and forces its way and doesn't grant real freedom. It is impossible for genuine love to exist without freedom. Uh, If God were to act this way, he would destroy any individuality of any mind he acted on in this way. They would become puppets, robots, or programmed machines, but they would not be capable of loving. So it's false. Uh, The L stands for limited atonement. Calvinism teaches that the atonement was made only for the elect, not for all human beings, that Jesus' death did not make it possible for all human beings to come to salvation, but only those who, who God chose to save. They make this argument for several reasons, but all of them are based on multiple layers of false assumptions. Calvinists believe that uh, the lie that God's law functions like human law, and Jesus' death was necessary to pay our legal debt to sin, uh, uh, our legal sin debt. This distortion of God's law is imperial, makes God uh, out as a as a rule maker and enforcer of rules, and leads to the distortion about the atonement. They ask questions. Calvinists ask questions like to try to to trap you to, to agree with them. If Christ's death was for all men, then why are not all men saved? Couldn't a sovereign God save all men if he wanted to? Okay. Thus, because they misunderstand God's law, they misunderstand God's sovereignty. They see it through imperialism, an authoritarian God. And if he's sovereign, then he makes things happen. And if you're not saved, then he didn't want you to be saved because he's sovereign. It's a gross distortion of sovereignty. 
understanding design law fixes this problem because understanding his sovereignty, we believe God is sovereign, but he's only sovereign through his nature, character, and laws, which is love, and love requires freedom. So God sustains his law of freedom and only saves people in harmony with the law of liberty. Thus, he allows people to choose not to be saved, and he does not destroy their individuality. That would only make robots or computers. I is irresistible grace. This means what it says. To whomever God decides to hit, boom, with the phaser beam of his grace, they are unable to resist it and will be saved. According to the teaching, this teaching, God's grace cannot be resisted. Thus, only those who God chooses are saved. The lost are lost because God chose not to hit them with his irresistible grace. Again, this teaching violates the law of liberty. It would erase individuality. It would destroy personhood. It would create robots and make human beings devoid of the image of God. Who wants to destroy the image of God in man? This is a doctrine of the devil. I will just tell you. This is a doctrine of the devil. Um, and what kind of God would God be if he actually operated this way? He would be an arbitrary God who just does things because he has power to do it, which is exactly Satan's argument against God in the beginning. And he would not be a God that we could trust. And he would not be a God of love. It would be a God of force and coercion. And then the P stands for preservation of the saints. It essentially means that if God had chosen you and hit you with irresistible grace, then he preserves you so you can never be lost. It is a form of once saved, always saved, but even more corrupt because the Calvinist view, you don't even have an initial choice to choose to be saved. God chose it for you. Okay, You're a passive pawn in the hands of a controlling God. And such a view, again, destroys individuality and the ability to love because we have no real freedom. We're just pawns in the hand of a powerful potentate. So I just wanted to go through that. Question came in about it. Um, you, we absolutely are in the Ar Armenian tradition, not the Calvinist tradition. And you should feel very good about that because the Armenian is principles of free will, that God provides what's necessary for salvation but leaves all beings free, and each person must choose to accept what God has offered. And this retains your individuality, and that's why you must choose. Every person must be fully persuaded in their own mind, says Rome, uh, Paul in Romans. And you must be persuaded because the only way for you to be healed from sin without erasing you is for you, you to be persuaded and personally choose to say yes. And then God can come in and heal and change and transform you while you retain your own individuality. So that's why we present truth in love and leave people free. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your goodness and the fact that you are love and that you are sovereign and you run your universe on these incredible design laws that are so magnificent. We can't even understand them. And we ask that you will pour your spirit out, take the victory of Christ, reproduce it in us, give us the new hearts, right spirits, uh, empowering us to live as children of faith, children of Abraham, reborn like uh, miraculously like Isaac, and then living victoriously like the children of Israel, we pray in your holy name. Amen.